the idea of setting Narnia in present. What if we had an adaptation where it was set in modern times? You know, having to to leave L.A. for uh, Montana because, you know, you got to get out, you know, from the pandemic. <laughs> I mean, don't, don't put it past people, guys. <laughs> Welcome to Talking Beasts from NarniaWeb.com, where we explore the world of C.S. Lewis and keep a watchful eye on the latest Narnia movie news. This is Talking Beasts. Welcome to this season of Talking Beasts, the Narnia podcast. This is Glumpuddle, and we're going to kick off this season um, talking about the upcoming Narnia adaptations from Netflix, which were announced two years ago but are still in development. And here to talk about that with me is, drumroll, Jim Fan's back. Hello, hello. Seems like it's been forever. <laughs> it's, it was because of I moved a couple episodes we recorded for last season. I postponed them to. <laughs> This season, so you you'd ended ended up getting you were on the cutting room floor. I was on the cutting room goes. floor. Well, I was when or what was I going to say? It was like I actually did record stuff over the last few months, guys. It right. just means you'll get to hear more of me this season. Exactly, be more to you this season. But I ended up moving some of the episodes that were originally intended to be for the previous season. I moved them to this season. So because of that, yeah. there was no Jim fan in the previous season. I womp, do womp, apologize womp. To, oh. to everyone for that. I know everyone was devastated. I still podcast. <laughs> yes, all the listeners we lost because of last season. Oh. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're back now that Jim fan's here. But you've been pretty busy because you became a mom. Uh, not that yet. Something like that. Yes, yeah, so I started fostering. <laughs> yes, yeah, started fostering. Um, my roommates and I... Um, back in July, yeah, July um, started uh, working with an organization that helps to place kids in safe homes while their parents are sorting some stuff out. So we started fostering two sisters, um, and we did that all summer and through the fall and winter. And that was incredible. Um, it was a lot of work, but it was it was really fun to kind of have kids in the house again and yeah, um, kind of in between placements at the moment, but um going to keep moving forward in the new year. So yeah, that has been taking up quite a lot of my time. Well, good um, for you. The last good for you. Se- uh, couple seasons. Did you introduce Narnia to them? Not yet. No, Although, no not, you know, my plan was not my plan. We do have all the books and we had just started kind of playing, you know, like doing like, okay, we're going to read chapter books to them. Um, and Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe was definitely really high on the list. Um, but we never end up quite getting there. Um, but you know, okay. the, oh, well, the kids are okay. still in our lives. So, you know, I'll, I'll keep working. I'll keep working on it, guys. Don't worry. Okay, well, yeah, <laughs> keep, keep us updated. Yes. Well, good for you, and welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you. All right. So, turning to today's topic, uh, it's been a while since we did an episode talking about Netflix, and the main reason being is that there's not a whole lot to talk about. Cricket, um, cricket, cricket. Yeah, quick quick recap of the whole Netflix Narnia situation. So, basically, in 2018, Netflix announced they were going to be, they had the rights, and they were going to be producing Narnia movies and series which was, whoa, da-da-da-da. Then in 2019, Matthew Aldrich, co-writer of, or the screenwriter of Coco, um, was announced as a creative architect. Same, same thing as a showrunner, we assume. So his, so his creative vision. 
Then in 2020, a pandemic cri- crippled the entertainment industry. Among um, other things. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, mainly that I emphasize that last one because I, I'm noticing a lot of shuffling and impatience from fans on social media like oh they're th- th- that netflix thing is never gonna happen they announced that was two years ago they announced <laughs> it and uh nothing's happened so clearly they just clearly netflix just dropped a quarter million dollars on the rights to the book and then just gave up um now i'm not saying that definitely won't happen i'm not saying that netflix will definitely not just sell off the rights and that we won't actually see any narnia adaptations from them um but it's too early to be uh, saying that is all I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that if it had been a normal year, if we had gone through the entirety of 2020 and we're still in the same place that we were back at the beginning of the year, then I would be very much thinking, okay, this is not happening at all. But you do have to take into consideration the fact that, um, you know, there's kind of been stuff going on in the global scale um, last year just a little bit I don't know what but you know Um, and (laughs) that has made it I mean that's just disrupted anything like anyone who watches TVs or movies know that it's been hard enough just to get normal TV shows to produce during the last year you know ones that are already Mm -hmm. have been in production and established um, let Mm -hmm. alone anything new like that just has just not happened so that makes me feel a lot better in the sense that okay i can give it time um i think it's definitely worth you know waiting for things to kind of go back to normal a little bit and then restart the clock if that makes any sense like i don't think this year counts yeah and i i can understand um why people are getting impatient because uh the silver chair strung us along for four or five years and it's not like they called a press conference and said hey everybody we decide sorry we decided not to make the silver chair it just sort of petered out, and one by one we start going, so I guess it's not going to happen? We, we, even though they had a screenwriter, do we have David McGee on this podcast talking about his silver chair screenplay? Mm-hmm. J- Joe Johnston announced as the director. We had Sony on board. We had a lot of very firm, you know, legitimate news. Um, and yet it just sort of slowly petered out, and they left us to assume, well, I guess it's not happening. And that's always frustrating when that happens, when – I'm emotional, emotionally invested in this production, but instead of like giving us the the dignity of uh, g- g- giving us uh, of some kind of announcement of hey, sorry to disappoint you guys, but production's been scrapped, they just sort of walk away, leaving us to, f- to try to figure out what happened. And finally, uh, Doug Gresham gave us some answers on what happened with the silver chair. But so I, I can understand after being strung along for four or five years on silver chair. Uh, being quick to just you know sort of give up on netflix yeah um and again i'm not saying netflix will definitely happen with narnia i'm saying it's way too early to be saying uh that oh, well obviously they gave up because we haven't heard anything in two and a half years with a large especially especially with a large chunk of that being a pandemic yeah just you um, need to like not count 2020 in the time uh-huh. thing at all right. basically yeah. is my feeling but this is the time when presumably Matthew Aldrich, which, hey, maybe this gave him more time to get his script together. Um, we'll see. Yeah. So this is the time to, uh, I figure, for the fans to really make their voices heard. And uh, let that's one of the, if you go to, if you scroll to the bottom of NarniWeb.com, there's a About NarniWeb page. And one of the central missions listed there is to amplify the voices of readers who want 
uh, filmmakers to treat C.S. Lewis's books with the respect they deserve. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're going to do in this episode. Um, This is kind of a letter to Netflix, if you're listening, Matthew Aldrich, if you're listening. Um, You know, I have mixed feelings on how overly conscious a screenwriter or a director or whoever should be about fans. Um, rather, hey, look, rather than just have a vision for something and execute it. But for what it's worth, here is what fans are thinking and feeling right now. So what we did is we polled our friends and knights of Narniweb. They are our top supporters over at Patreon. Um, if you want to sign up to be a friend or knight of Narniweb, you can go to um, patreon.com slash Narniweb and get a lot of exclusive content, including... Um, uh, after every episode, most episodes, we post a little additional quick episode, little post-show chatter. And at the end of this episode, uh, over on Patreon, I'm going to ask Patreon. Uh, I'm going to ask Jim Fan if the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe" is a Christmas movie, and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna hash that one out. So there, all the there might be uh, food being thrown at each other. We'll see how that one goes because um, things can get passionate. <laughs> um, but so I asked our friends and knights of Narnia Web, um, what do they want to see? out of these Netflix productions. Um, now's the time when Netflix can listen and make adjustments. Uh, once they get started, there's some things might be too late. Now there's mm-hmm. still time to make changes. So I sort of said, hey, friends and Knights of Narnia Web, our top supporters, what is it that you want to see from, uh, from these Netflix productions? Or, and what are you concerned about um, as well? And we got a lot of responses, and many of them, not all of them, but many of them will be including in this episode. And basically, Jim Finn and I are going to go back and forth and read um, some things that people wrote about their hopes and their concerns for these upcoming Netflix adaptations. We yes. all we've all read these books; they've all affected us very personally, and we care about them. It's beyond just being entertained; like it really matters to us that these be respect the essence of the book uh, and uh, be quality entertainment. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go through these one by one and uh, just read and react to them. And Netflix, if you're listening, you know, for what it's worth, I hope this is helpful to you in some way. These are are our completely unasked for opinions. (laughs) But here they are. Whether you like them or not. No, I'm just kidding. Exactly. That that is what we do. Hey, you can can listen now or you can listen to us (laughs) after when we're mad. Okay. So let's go ahead and get started. I wanted to just start with my own because I'm the producer of the podcast, and so I can do that. Exactly. I just to do, start... do what you want. Yeah. And then, then when I brought this up in the notes, you're like, oh, I have something to say about that. But I just wanted, I just thought, thought the first place I, I want to start is Aslan. And um, it's kind of like, what, what specifically? It's really just that Aslan is the hero. And hero is kind of a cheesy term for him, I guess. But there was this effort in the Walden movies to de-emphasize Aslan and just kind of make him the Obi-Wan Kenobi guy who says, yes, you've done well. And the kids are really the the heroes of the story in the Walden versions. Um, so I would say don't be afraid to make Aslan mysterious and all-powerful. It's a, it's a risky thing to do because there's this uh, mistrust of power and institutions that we've seen um, growing. And uh, there, there's a tendency to, you know, that's why Star Wars had to have the new Star Wars. They had to have, the, they, they, they couldn't have the bad, the good guys be the powerful ones. They had to restore the status quo and make them the resistance, which didn't really make any sense. Because <laughs> you've, you've got to have the bad guys be in power and exactly. the good guys are resisting. So I would say um, one of the things I love about Narnia and why I want them to be, why I want there to be fresh Narnia adaptations 
uh, in this decade is that I think the world could use something with that they can believe in that doesn't have a trace of cynicism. Mm. And that's the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, so understand that Aslan is, he's mysterious and he's all powerful. And also that he's not a tame lion. I felt that progressively throughout the series in the Walden movies, we saw Aslan feeling very tame. Um, and uh, just fe- feeling like you could almost predict what he was going to say before he said it. Have Aslan do surprising things. And say surprising things like "I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms." Um, so Aslan and the wonder of not knowing everything about him, uh, and being excited to see him, uh, and, ha- and have him doing surprising things. That—that's like the essence of. He's the only character in all seven books, and so if you can't get that right, it's not worth doing. So get Aslan right, make him mysterious, make him all-powerful, make him surprising is the first thing I wanted to mention um, regarding uh, ways they can improve Aslan with the Netflix series and movies. Interesting. I think kind of along the same lines, and I was just thinking about this yesterday when I was preparing to record this podcast, was that one thing about Aslan and we've talked about this on other podcasts before about like why is it so hard to get him right and Mm -hmm. why there was a lot of mixed reaction as far as his character in the Walden films like because it was like do they do the filmmakers even know what they're going for because it is like what did they what what did they do in the Walden movie yeah Yeah. with every movie it was sort of like he had less to do and you weren't really sure why he was there. Right. But commit to it. Or if you're going to, if you want to make sure that he is, like you said, this mysterious, all knowing, all powerful being. Make him intriguing. Then make him Mm intriguing. Basically figure out what you want and then just just commit to it. Um, I think that would be better than kind of the waffling mishmash, like, Slightly yeah. confusing Aslan that we ended mm-hmm. up with, if that makes sense. I, yeah, I, I think with, with the, what we saw a lot in the Walden movies is they're very pra- a lot of practical reasons. I think that they wanted to kind of give As takes away some of Aslan's power. They wanted to give White Witch, the White Witch, for example, a little more power to make them feel like they were more or less equals. Because if because I'm sure from a screenwriter's perspective, it's like, well, if the good guys have the most powerful being in the universe on their side, where's the sense of conflict? Exactly. Where where, where, where is the drama? And it's like a um, foregone conclusion. Right, but it's not though, because Aslan behaves in surprising ways. And I love that line in Voyage of the Dawn Treader when Lewis L- Lucy makes him visible, and he says, "Don't you think I would obey my own rules?" Um, and the fact that Aslan doesn't always do the thing you expect, and Lucy even says, "Like you know, I thought you would come in and roaring in and save us like last time." Um, so Aslan is. There's always we don't know what Aslan can do, and we don't know where he is. We don't know exactly where he's come from. Um, and embrace that and make it intriguing. Make the fact that we don't know everything about him and why doesn't why doesn't he do this, for example, make that an interesting mystery. Um, so yeah, Aslan, Aslan, Aslan. Uh, make don't make Aslan an afterthought like he was in the Walden movies. Uh, you get Aslan. Even I think you captured even half of what Lewis achieved in the Narnia books. You're gonna have a really memorable movies and series. And speaking of memorable, I want you to go ahead and read that one from Darby. All right. So our next uh, suggestion, wish, wish list item that we have. Uh, what, are we, what are we calling these again? 
Yeah, I, I guess well, <laughs> wish, wish list item. I okay. guess we can call it that. Our next wish. Uh, and uh, it goes like this. It says, if there are some things that they can't do because adaptation to different medium is going to require changes, I get that. But I really hope the Puddleglum speech in particular is 100% from the book. And I feel like this is something that you probably have a strong opinion about as well, Glum Puddle. Well, I definitely, um, <laughs> that's obviously a seminal moment for Puddle Glum's character in the silver chair when he, uh, the smell of burnt marsh wiggle fills the room and Puddle Glum stands up to the Lady of the Green Kirtle and says, I'm going to live like a Narnia. I'm going to live like a Narnian even if there isn't any Narnia. Um, so it is something where you read it and yeah, I completely get what Darby is saying here that it's just read that right there. There's there's no reason to. I understand there might be things about that scene that are different, adaptation, yada yada. But that moment is such a great uh, him standing up to the Lady of the Green Kirtle and um, and saying that um, is such a it's such a courageous moment. It's Puddleglum is such an example of true courage where um, he is clearly afraid, but he does the right thing anyway. And in that, that's what make you can't have true courage without knowing there is something to fear. In other words, you really can't be truly courageous unless you're also afraid. Um, so in that moment, Puddleglum is doubting. He's doubting maybe the sun isn't real um, and is choosing in that moment to do the courageous thing and trust Aslan anyway. And I think what's... In the, I don't know if they can convey this in the, in the movie or the series or whatever, but I don't believe Puddle, Puddleglum is really saying... I'm going to believe it, even though I know it's not true. I think that he's proclaimed when he says, supposing what you're saying is true, supposing that we, these are babies making up a game for fun, have made up something that rings so true. Suppose that has happened. Suppose we invented the sun. Um, that's absurd. That, uh, what he's really saying is, but that can't possibly be the case. And that's the reason why he's choosing to believe it. Or he's choosing to live like it's true, even if it's not actually true. Because the sum total of what he's saying is, but that can't be true. That would be ridiculous. If, if, we, if you're saying that we just made up the sun or we just made up lions, that doesn't actually make any sense. Um, so I don't know how, if they can really, how much they can convey that in the series. But the short answer is, Darby, I completely hear you. I don't see at this point any particular reason why that can't be more or less word for word straight from the book. Uh, there's there's areas of Narnia where it's like you got to adapt it to make it work for a, a, a movie or a series or whatever. But right now, I can't see why this can't just jump right off the page. Yeah. And it's such a memorable, iconic moment. Yeah, I agree. And I think that that piece is so essential to the book like it's it to me that is oh yeah the essential essence of the silver chair so and i think the person that it comes from is also very important in the fact that that is essentially you know the essence of the silver chair um uh -huh. so it would i could see them being like oh well, it's like this hero moment like let's make it more of a group effort or said huh. you know like maybe it can come from our other hero characters like no i think it it has to be puddle glum and it it has to be if because if you change it then it it changes a lot and so i don't really see why you would want to do that unless yeah, you're I th making I think some fundamental changes to the book puddle glum has been taking so much heat for being a wet blanket but now he's the one in this moment that's gonna stand up and show real courage. Um, and I think that's such a great example for Jill 
who doesn't have anybody in her life that she can trust. She's the only human character of the main characters who, whose parents are never mentioned. Uh, she's getting bullied all the time at school. She has no one in authority she can trust. It's not surprising. She has a hard time trusting Aslan signs. Um, and uh, Puddleglum is such a great uh, example for her. So uh, yeah, I completely agree. It's It's got to be Puddleglum. Uh, obviously, Puddleglum is my favorite character, so of course I'm going to say that. Um, but yeah, completely with you on this one, Darby. Uh, next point. Here's one. Um, it's an interesting one. Uh, Jonathan Paravel writes, quote, I am totally for extra stories such as some events in Charn or other adventures starring Reepicheep. However, these should not overshadow the original seven. They should act as spinoffs or episodic content. I don't want people to think that Lacerolene's scandalous adventures are canon, for example. <laughs> End quote. End um, quote. So yeah, what, what Jonathan Paravel is talking about here is there was speculation because the original press release announcing the Netflix um, Narnia movies in series uh, used the word universe a few times. And so there was immediately speculation that are they going to do some things, you know, like um, Star Wars has done now where you do a little spinoff. So they're going to have things that aren't exactly from the book, but are kind of inspired by the book kind of, you know, totally off canon. Um, and Jonathan Paravel is saying he's totally fine with that. But if I understand you correctly, Jonathan, you're just saying, but designate it as such. Make it clear, you know, that, oh, this is extra stuff. Like with, you know, with, like with Star Wars, you have your episodes, but then you've got your Rogue One and your Han Solo. And you, you know. But they're still just, canon. They're still canon, so that's, that's not a perfect example, but. Um, They're not. I well, you, I guess they I, are I think, based off of source material, but it, yeah, yeah, yeah I, it's I it's meant to be somewhat separate from the main right. story. I I I just think that Jonathan's just saying here, just make sure there's some kind of distinction, right? Like, oh, there's this stuff, and then there's the main stuff. Um, the idea of doing a kind of off-canon stuff, like for example. <laughs> Uh, I'm a little worried about JP giving uh, them ideas <laughs> with with uh, Lacerolene's scandalous adventures, um, <clears throat> but seriously, or like a repeat sheep series or something like that, or maybe even the, the fall of Charn or something like that um, that uh, Kahina is going to talk about later. Yeah. Um, I conceptually, I admit that we've talked about this before, so I won't dwell on it too long, I guess, but. Yeah, my my gut reaction is, ooh, no, I kind of have this jolt negative reaction to the idea of doing something like that. Um, but as I think about it, conceptually, I don't mind the idea of them doing, you know, more Narnia stories um, or expanding on using the books as a starting point, but doing something else. I just very much doubt, I don't doubt that it could be done well. I doubt that it would be done well. Yeah. Um, See, like, I'm not opposed to fleshing out stories and creating new material as a principle. I just, I'm not. However, for so some Reba reason, begins. you know, just for some reason, when it comes to Narnia, like th I have a hard time wrapping my head around it, which maybe I shouldn't, but to me, and, and maybe this is more just like my view of like Narnia as a universe, insert air quotes here, but to me, it's it's not like that was a a world that was built for that outside of the stories that were written. Um, like when you know you look at something like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or any numerous 
like the, you know these really big stories and worlds that have expanded beyond their original source material like i it's easier for me to see that for, for some reason with narnia i just have a hard time seeing it um because there's i i don't feel like there was so much world building that was done that gives you a super solid base where you can make new stuff and have it still feel like Narnia. Does that make sense? The same thing. Yeah. Yes. And and I think one of the reasons is that it's hard to visualize that is that what Lewis didn't say is pretty compelling. Yeah. Like the fact that he, he left these little dot, 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 he left these loose ends and made Narnia feel like, uh, it's simple. And that's obviously written in like the, as a, in that genre of children's literature. But, um, but it feels like, oh, there's so much more that happened. We're just getting a glimpse of it. And if you start filling in things too much, you're ruining the magic. You're actually making it the world feel smaller, not bigger. Um, Lewis gives you a little bit, and you imagine, oh, but it feels like it's so much bigger. Um, and so if you make it too finite, you give me too much, you're actually making it feel smaller. Um, so, yeah, it's more if someone has a great idea for a Narnia story, um, like I'm not opposed. Really ca- I just, I, f- I just doubt it would be done well. I really do. <laughs> it just feels like a harder sell. Well, it kind of, um, kind of just going straight into our next suggestion, which is, um, I feel like kind of along the same line, the same lines. Um, also from Darby Summers, um, she says, "I just want to, f- I just really want to feel the, I." Re- ah. Start over. She says, "I really just want the feel and atmosphere of Narnia." Which goes to question, okay, what is the feel and atmosphere of Narnia? Like, how do you capture that in a, not, you know, based off of the books? And then also, if you're making additional material that's not canon, like, what what does it mean to be the feel and atmosphere of Narnia? How do you define that? I really given this some thought. I'm like, okay, I really want to come up with an answer. It, ideally one that might be kind of helpful to Netflix. But the fact that it's hard to kind of hard to define, that is kind of the point. It's that thing that makes that's hovering there in the background that gives the story that feeling that you can kind of smell that that it's the fact that it's it it should be hard to define. That's kind of the point of it. And art can put images to things that are hard to put into words. But I thought of recently um a great clue. Um and it kind of came to mind because of the um, the tension in our country right now, that being the United States. Um, and, um, and we're recording this now in the aftermath of the um, the, the riots in Washington, D.C. That's uh, very fresh right now uh, at, at the Capitol. Um, but I think the idea of central to the atmosphere of Narnia is monarchy. And it might seem kind of obvious or kind of, really? That's it? All you're talking about atmosphere and it's monarchy? But I think that um, intellectually it's very easy to sneer at the idea of monarchy. And there's a hundred valid reasons for that, especially in this country, because of our history. Um, and there's a thousand examples in history of monarchy being abused and absolute power corrupts absolutely and yada yada. That's all completely true. I'm, I'm completely on board with that and I understand it. That said, I think that there is something in a lot of human beings that is attracted to the ideal of monarchy. 
what the of a monarchy that actually works the way it would ideally with the king and the queen that is going to be wise and fair and rule the land and make everything good and and, ser- and serve the people and listen to the people um and just make everything good that is an ideal that is attractive to us even though intellectually it's like but but yeah you know we don't because absolute power corrupts absolutely and because of human nature monarchy is often it's usually not something we would we actually want as a system of government but what we have in narnia is a monarchy we can believe in and monarchy we can we can get behind and i've been thinking cuz i don't find myself thinking that when i'm reading narnia like oh just waiting for the inevitable moment when peter gets power hungry and it all goes wrong whereas pretty much any other story i do find myself kind of waiting for that even in a superhero movie very often i'll be waiting for oh he has a lot of power what's gonna happen um but with narnia i find myself not thinking about that i suspect it's largely because of aslan aslan is this mysterious character we don't know a lot about so it's easy to kind of I think it's easy for me to accept the conceit that Aslan's just good. That's right. just kind of the yeah. point of the character. Mm-hmm. He's not safe, but he's all-powerful, and he's good. That's yeah. sort of the conceit of the character. And if you buy into that, which I do, and know that Aslan is over this whole thing, it's not just Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. Aslan's there hovering in the background. He's installed them as the kings and queens. It's a monarchy with the crowns and the pageantry and the kings and queens and that ideal that we believe in. And I think that's really cozy. And I think that's really a, a really, a really reassuring idea. And so I think the, the, all the imagery you would associate with the monarchy of the, the crowns and the robes and the, and they have their servants and their, and their courtiers and the dukes and duchesses and, <laughs> and the, and the, and, and, and the, the castles and the flags and the, the king leading his army into war to protect his people. That, that that aura is that we can believe in and not be cynical about is what defines Narnia. It's completely the opposite of Game of Thrones. You know, well, Game of yes. Thrones, which, <laughs> a, 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 as the title suggests, is about the revolving door of people trying to reclaim the throne and use it for their own selfish gain. Yeah. It couldn't be any, any more different than that. Um, so monarchy that we can get excited about and be comforted by and believe in um, is, I think, central hmm to um narnia which is why what they did in prince caspian with peter and caspian characters is so is so tragic yeah in in, in, the, in the movie yeah i think if like to kind of maybe sum up i think what you're getting at is that in narnia like good is good and bad is bad and there's not a lot of this morally gray area where you're having to think through okay is this person what this person like they're trying to do the right thing but they're actually you know no but they actually have bad motives or you know you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop it's pretty much like no like Aslan is good the things he's for is good and when people believe in that and they follow that then things are going to be okay and then also yeah, and then bringing along like those old, not old fashioned, but like those kind of like morals uh, and honor mm-hmm. and values, values if chivalry, uh-huh. you know, things like that, that kind of come alongside that. So when things are going right, those values and morals mm-hmm. and things are being lifted up. Right. And I think that what you're describing 
in another author's hands, and I would even say most authors' hands, those are negative things you're describing, where it's like, well, it's just simple good and simple evil, and that's difficult. That's a difficult thing to sell because it might. It just seems very one dimensional and not very interesting. But I believe Lewis does it in a way that is believable. His yeah. characters are usually fairly simple. There's not a ton of layers to them, mm-hmm. but Lewis gives them this human reality. He, he gets the details right. Like, right. Mr. Beaver is not a particularly complex or layered character, but the fact that he, like, wants the kids to notice his dam. You know, oh, yeah. maybe, oh merely, merely, merely a trifle, merely a trifle. He gets the human <laughs> details right. So yeah. Lewis had this amazing marriage of simplicity, simple good and evil. Yeah. Simple, not super layered characters, but I believe in their reality nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's so that's what Lewis achieved more than any author I've ever encountered. And I think that's central to that atmosphere of Narnia, that king and queen and the monarchy that we cannot be cynical about but really believe in. That's why it's so comforting. Yeah. Because um, there's a hundred reasons throughout the day to be cynical. Right. But Narnia is this simple thing that we can believe in and accept. And I think the... I don't know what's the right word for this, but the the non-complexity of the story and people and their motives, I think there's something very wholesome about that there's something very cozy about that like because he makes it believable if it didn't have lewis's subtle touches of making it believable it would just be like oh okay it wouldn't have any the resonance Mm -hmm. but it does and so that way you can look at narnia and you can read the stories and you can take it at face value and not feel like Uh okay i need to be reading through the lines here i need to be analyzing what's going on because something's happening that i don't that i I think is going to be important later on it's like no what does peter what's peter's real end game yeah you you can more or less take it at face value which in one sense is simplistic but in the other sense is very like there's a time and a place for that and i think narnia is the time and the place it's re- it's reassuring and it's again it's the fa- what all the things you're describing i think are things that in other authors hands would be largely negative things it's lewis takes those things and makes them humanly knowable and gives them a, re- a reality and so and I, so yeah netflix if you're listening don't do what they did with peter and caspian in the prince caspian movie uh, figure out a way to have Peter walk in and say, you know, I have not come to take your throne. I've come to put you into it. Um, and have that, try to make that resonate and have that feel real. This is not an easy task, but if you're not up to it, there's plenty of other fantasy books you can adapt instead of Narnia. Yeah, it's like having the simplicity for a child to understand while also not talking down mm-hmm. to said child. Right. Um, yeah, I think that, I don't know. It's such a hard exactly. thing to de- to define. Like, yes, it's mm-hmm. like like you said, it's such an intangible thing, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've had three adaptations of Narnia that all feel wildly different. Um, and it's kind of hard to put your finger on why each of them feel different, but they do because, um, yeah, because maybe the essence of what we personally feel to be the atmosphere is different. Right. Uh, you mentioned uh, the youthful feeling, and our next one is kind of kind of related to that. Uh, this comes from another one from Jonathan Paravel, who writes, quote, I want the ages of the kids to be closer to the ages in the books. 
we don't need a 16-year-old Peter to feel like he's a hero, by which he assumes he means we don't need Peter to be 16 to feel like he's a hero. Um, and uh, the Pevensey kids in the Walden versions were pretty close. Um, yeah, we did have a Peter who was a few years older. Um, then we then I guess by the time yeah you get to Prince Caspian, they start to get the age pretty quickly. And then you had Ben Barnes, who was 25. Um, <laughs> Definitely not a young yeah. kid. Yeah, a lot of it is probably. I think it's just I mean, pra- pra- yeah, practical. A lot of it is probably practical. Yeah, like, easier to deal with older kids. Like you, I mean, you see all the when people people talk about Georgie Henley, you know, when she was cast to be Lucy, and she was very young. Um, and the things that they did to help her along, like obviously she is an incredible actress, and I think we kind of take that for granted. But also, like you, ha- I think that's more rare in Hollywood than you realize. Like it's actually not easy to work with kids that age to get the quality performance that you want, unless you're willing to jump through a lot of hoops and take a lot of time. And even that's not a promise. So there is a reason why when you see books and things being adapted, that often kids are aged up or it's a a older actor playing younger um that's very normal and there's a reason why um so in that sense it doesn't really like i understand it it doesn't really bother me i think that as long as the the essence of what they're going for is still it still comes across then i think it's fine um obviously like when it came to ben barnes like that was a deliberate choice like they wanted they wanted Caspian to be an older teenager. Like they, I think he played, I don't know what age he played. I think he played him to be like 18 or 19, right? He was, I mean, yeah, Ben Barnes was 25, but yeah, yeah certainly. But like, but he wasn't playing be... Caspian to be 25 exactly. is what I'm saying. Like he was yeah. playing him uh-huh. to be like an older teenager. Upper teens. Yeah. Upper teens mm-hmm. Like 19 right. at the most. Um, right. So like that, but that was a choice. Like they didn't want yeah. Caspian to be. 10 11 12 so i mean as long as you whatever choice you're going with as long as it makes sense it, then it's yeah i fine would with me yeah i i would just say um i understand like there's this magic in the books of you know even when they're like you know you have lucy and prince caspian returning as or maybe dawn treader is a better example she's on board the dawn treader and people bow to queen lucy and you don't th- you don't question it as a reader, even though she's a little kid, you go, oh, she's Queen Lucy. And there's a magic in that of having these really little kids that you completely accept as ro- as royalty. Or maybe Peter in Prince Caspian is another great example. He walks into that room at Aslan Tau and just completely takes over the room. Um, and, and everyone respects him as King Peter. Um, if you can get that contradiction right, that, oh, there's we have this little kid, but is believable as a king of Narnia, that is... I would love to see that. That's very ambitious, though, um, to be able to do that w- w- with a to find a performer that is able to do that. So, yeah, I would just say I would love to see that, but I also understand the reasons why they don't. Uh, we're seeing less and less of that as the decades have gone on. Like if you, it, we used to see, you know, um, 
very uh you know it wasn't uncommon to see like people in their 20s playing little kids you know and it was just accepted as a convention that just use your imagination you know and we've seen people get more daring you know with that so who knows maybe we will see uh then try to age him down a little bit i would just, I'd love to see him try just as long as they don't you know go for the deep fake route i'm so over it oh, by gosh. the way and if you don't know what i'm talking about Star Wars has been utilizing this quite a bit recently, oh. and I am not to go off topic, but I'm not a fan. So let, I'll, we'll just throw that out there. Netflix, that's I remember, not your solution. Right. I remember people saying about Silver Chair, you know, several years had gone by, and like, oh, they should just, they should just, they should just, just de-age Will Poulter digitally. It's so easy. Uh, like, um, please don't. <laughs> every single shot, spend a bajillion dollars de-aging Will Poulter. Or we could just recast Will Poulter as uh, the other solution. Yeah. Um, but I understand. People really loved Will Poulter and Don Trader and wanted to see him. Yeah. But oh, yeah, man, I'm I got, with you on that I got one. a lot of thoughts about this whole like deep I bet you do, but CGI you can't thing. say we'll it right now. We'll save that for later. Oh, I don't gosh. think what you're talking about is technically speaking a deep fake. It, but it is... Uh, Let's move on. Let's keep going. Uh, can't, can't, say, can't say anything else. <laughs> All right. right. What, what do we got next? next? Wish slash suggestion comes from Kaina. I hope I said that correctly. Um, she says, I would be beyond thrilled to see Charn brought to life. You can't really have a character simply talking on screen for minutes at a time. I'm hoping they all dr- dramatize it in flashbacks rather than just sidestepping it or move on with the story. Um, if they're if they keep if they're keen on filling gaps left by the books, I'd also love to see coverage on how she conquered Narnia and just uh, um, that, so, so that whole backstory. Uh, whole she backstory. Said, she said the, said the deplorable word, and you know, but you don't see it. Uh, She's just killed everyone but herself. She just she tells Diggory and uh, about it. So yeah, uh, do we want to see that on screen? I think. Part of me is like, ooh, yes, please. I would love to see that visualized. But then the other part of me is like, there's something quite unsettling and mysterious about having this this massive thing happen that you don't know anything about and you don't ever get to know. Well, we do. She, well, she, when she, 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 she describes it in quite a bit of detail. Uh, but it's just a question of, and we can all, we're all, pic- as we're reading it, but as we're reading it, we're certainly picturing the images in our head. And so it's just a question of when they do the movie, do we just have a shot of Jadis and she just tells it to you? Or should we like, I, I think that's what Kina's K- yeah. getting at here is, do we have uh, just a close up of Jadis and she tells it and we have Diggory's and Polly's reactions or should we actually cut back at maybe with her voiceover still over it and actually see, you know, what she's describing. Um, and that would be the more conventional way to do it, certainly. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I think that that would um, – I can certainly see why they would do that. Instead, like Ina says, instead of just having a character sit there and yeah. explain something. Or, or you go the opposite direction and you don't even – reference you don't even describe it as much as she even does in the books and rather you just kind of see the aftermath and you have to draw your own conclusions like the only reason why i'm i'm thinking this at the moment is because um last night i watched this netflix film called uh midnight sky which is basically this like it's set mostly in space but also on earth but basically a massive something massively horrible has happened to earth that's basically killed everyone and has made it uninhabitable and it's a it like it something horrible has happened 
you'd never really you first of all you never know what happened you never know how it happened you just see bits and pieces of the aftermath and you are left to draw your own conclusions but that in and of Mm -hmm. itself is almost more intriguing than if they had just been like yeah it was like a you know, we we melted down a couple reactors and then, the, you know, the air quality blah, blah, blah. went to, you know, like if they had actually described it, mm-hmm. I think it would have lost a lot of the, you know, mis- mystery of it. So I'm like, that could be really interesting if instead mm-hmm. of even her describing what happens as much as she does in the books, you instead just kind of see it. Like yeah. you see the destruction um, and you're left to draw your own conclusions as to exactly how that went down. Yeah, I think that um, I see what you're getting at. I can certainly appreciate um, wanting to uh, be having the confidence to just let something be a mystery, not have to explain it. I think in this case, uh, I think it there's, a, there's this theme in Magician's Nephew of uh, you know Uncle Andrew and Jadis have some, something in common where they're messing with forces they don't fully understand, and they just they only value other people as far as they are valuable to them. Uncle Andrew finally gets to another world, and all he can think about is creating new railways or whatever um so i think that um and then ultimately aslan you know kind of gives narnia to king frank and is and tells him to work the land and be a servant the first the opposite of the queen the first in every desperate charge the last in every retreat completely the opposite of what jada said where she was willing to um make everyone else on earth disappear just so that she could be queen of nothing (laughs) Um, and so I think that's powerful. Um, I think there's a, might be a middle ground here though. Um, if you read Magician's Nephew, there's this recurring motif, I guess you could call it, of sound. Lewis is very concerned with the sounds things make in Magician's Nephew, from the hum of the rings to the lack of sound and the wood between the worlds to that, um, to like, there's no sense of life at all, you know, in Charn. Um, and of course, the song that Aslan sings, Lewis is very preoccupied with sound throughout Magician's Nephew. Um, what if you're like, you know, she's describing the battle and we cut to where it happened. And of course, now it's just completely empty. But we're hearing almost as if from the past, the sounds of the battle. Um, I think and, that would and, be cool. Like if you if you wanted to do something more. Then I would a little different. Yeah, I think that. Would right, be cool. The witch even talks about you know I you know she she says it is silent now, but I have stood here when the air was filled you know with the groaning of slaves and the crack of whips and the noises of charn and I wonder so I wonder if there might be a more a more interesting way of doing that than just yeah. cutting back and showing it. Just hearing um, it. Ooh, that would be very cool. I like that. Mm-hmm. Doug Gresham did mention uh, something about the the Charn battle when he was asked about Netflix's. He was just throwing out a random example, but oh, that might be one of the things that we could expand on, you know, in a movie or do something with. Um, and I don't know if he was actually. I don't think he was like, oh, and we just wrote that screenplay or something. I really think he was just, uh, you know, throwing that out as uh, one possibility. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we'll see. Um, next up, we have one from Rebecca Walton and Rebecca writes, quote, I would love to get the direct scene from the book when Edmund and Eustace talked to each other after the undragoning. This was a scene that I really missed in the Dawn Treader movie. Mm, Agreed. Absolutely. That is one of the, I mean, it's, there's so many other, in my opinion, so many other things the Dawn Treader movie got wrong leading up to when (laughs) you might have that, 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 that one actually kind of slipped under the radar a little bit. Um, Yeah. Because I don't think they did a great job with like Edmund's character, for example, throughout Don Treader. So even if they had had the scene, I'm not sure how much resonance it would have had. But um, certainly, the fa- the fact that it's Edmund 
you know, he says, you were only an ass. I was a traitor. Um, it's such a powerful scene, and, and, and having it be Edmund that gets told that, and the undragoning itself, of course, which is such a powerful moment of Eustace, who um, finally having to admit, I can't do something. Aslan, you have to do it for me. Uh, and the, the imagery Lewis uses to describe that of the skin ripping off is so memorable and so powerful and so completely ignored in the Walden <laughs> version. Um, yes. So, yes, uh, I would absolutely uh, love to see this uh, finally uh, uh, get represented in a, in a movie or a series or whatever. Because I can't remember. If, I, I don't... Th- I, I don't think BBC does that. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen the mm, BBC version. I don't think so either. But we've got to do our BBC reviews eventually. I know. So we, we, we got so we'll close. We'll get to that. We'll get to, I think that is on the docket. Hold for... that thought. Yes. All right. All what's right. next? Moving on. And our next one comes from Colonel Clink. And he says, it's sort of too late for this since Netflix already has a creative architect, but it might be a good idea to have a writer with a background in medieval philosophy and literature since C.S. Lewis was really enthusiastic about it. That might help keep their Narnia adaption thematically and tonally close to the books. However, I can't stand most medieval literature myself, so I hate to inflict <laughs> it on an innocent writer. <laughs> True. I, I'm, I'm not even familiar with most medieval literature um, myself, so I cannot confirm or deny that. My wife studies that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I I, I guess I don't really have a super strong opinion about this one just because I don't really, I'm not super familiar with that. So I I wouldn't know if that would potentially be super helpful. But suffice it to say, it, it, it is sort of, very much hovering in the back of Lewis's mind, mm-hmm. if not occasionally in the front, as far as what he bases uh, his world on. Yeah. Um, would it be helpful? I, I'm, I don't think it would hurt. I think that, um, you know, my, my first reaction was, well, first off, obviously we're asking for a lot here to have the right screenwriter. And also, oh, you also have to have a background on, uh, you know, I think uh, all, the, all, all these things. Yeah. Um, but, it certainly is like, you know, when you're trying, if you really are trying to make an adaptation that honors the book, you have to kind of be a mechanic and take something apart and figures out what is making this work. Um, and uh, so I, don't, I think to kind of get an idea of, hey, what are the larger themes in Lewis's head here? And what are the things that he's uh, um, basing this on? Like, I don't think that it would hurt to read Planet Narnia, for example, even though I have... Um, I'm not 100% on board with everything Dr. Ward says, but there is a lot in there that I do think oh, gives you a sense that I think he does a good job articulating uh, what makes each book unique, for example, and what each flavor is. Um, and so I think that might be helpful. So, um, yeah, I think it is one thing to not just uh, read the books and copy-paste, but uh, you know, it's not enough to read recite a story if you want to retell it you have to do have to kind of get inside what's happening underneath the hood here that we're not even consciously aware of so yeah i don't think that would hurt one bit yeah and i would say in particular it if you especially if you want to go off off-roading as one would say you know you want to absolutely you know you want to go and build 
more stories that are beyond your source material, then I think at the bare minimum, you need to have a really good consultant on payroll who is if someone you- <laughs> who knows these things and would who would know how to help you craft something that is still in line with your source material. Feels, it feels like it's cut from the same cloth. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's like the, the that- compromise is you just need to have a really good person a really good writer with a background in medieval philosophy and literature on payroll maybe not necessarily the art attack there you but go. you got to have them on payroll there you go yep yep like i said i don't think that that would hurt one bit we might be asking for a lot <laughs> but yeah that don't think that would hurt one there bit. you go uh next one another one from jonathan parabell um jonathan writes i want them to not rush through the scenes of the books therefore i prefer a series over feature films. I am very happy to see each book as a series. If they make any feature films, though, the two that I would that would suit most are Line the Witch, the Wardrobe, and The Silver Chair. So this was kind of the first thing that I think when we were first reacting to them doing movies, well, all they've said is they want to do movies and series. Um, and kind of the reaction was, well, that's interesting because each Narnia book is so different. This might give them license to say, well, there are certain books that could work better as a two to three hour movie and some that could work better as a multi-episode series. Don Treader, for example, seems like it could be a great uh, multi-episode series. Um, and then there are others um, that seem like it could just be a great, you know, one shot movie. Um, so I enjoy that uh, kind of flexibility. Um, I, as I, I prefer what's best for the story is what I prefer. Um, uh, the, I mean, the idea of um, um, it really just depends. It's hard for me to really visualize. Um, but I mean, really, I feel like seeing the thing that was would work best for because Narnia is all about atmosphere and being immersed in that atmosphere. And so I think that seeing a movie on a big screen with no distractions, I mean, like an IMAX screen where the sound is too loud. You can't even hear the candy wrappers around you um, <laughs> and you can just get immersed in it. That's probably the most like a 70 millimeter, you know, kind of version of it. That's probably the ideal way to do a Narnia story, probably generally. <laughs> um, but uh, if we have to do the series, then uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I like the flexibility of um, yeah, picking the ones that, that can be a series and it can be a series and the ones that were better as a movie than be a movie. Um, uh, I have a, I have a feeling that they'll probably do the line the witch and the wardrobe as a series just to set itself apart and just to be different from all the versions that have come before and it gives them the opportunity to do it in a, yeah, a, a, sl- a slightly slightly different way. Especially That'd be my prediction. Especially if they start with line witch and the wardrobe, which that's a question for a little bit later. Um, but yeah. yeah, I definitely think. I mean, Netflix does films and they do series. Um, they and like, they've talked about doing theatrical releases at some point. N- n- not of Narnia, but in general, Netflix has talked about getting movies in the theaters. Yeah, so I, I mean, yeah, I think there's there's pros and cons to both. And it really just depends on how you're adapting it and how you're choosing to craft your story. Um, the thing that comes to mind as a potential negative to a series is that you often have you have to find natural stopping points for each episode and sometimes in a book there there's not always like obviously there's chapters in books so you know you can kind of stick to you know maybe chapter chapter to chapter things but it doesn't always try to give each episode have a sense of be- some of somewhat of a sense of beginning middle and end yeah it doesn't always quite work out that way i mean if you listen to our like lion the witch and the wardrobe uh bbc commentary uh, slash just discussion 
um, there was definitely some places where they, you know, it, we had certain episodes and then they had where they chose to cut here and where they chose to continue here, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, you know, they had to make choices as far as how to do that. Um, so if you, the the thing that comes to my mind that makes me like hesitant is like, oh, a series gives the the writers the more liberty to create drama for the need to have quote you know cliffhangers right which sometimes those exist in the book and sometimes they don't so uh i just wouldn't want anything to become like ultra fabricated for that because of the medium requires it um but other than that i mean i think yeah it, 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 it would lead to I think one thing that I would just do uh, for those of you that really want to see a series, um, and D- even Douglas Gresham said, "Oh, a series is great because you can put the whole book in." Yeah, but one thing to keep in mind is it's probably not that simple. They, you will, we will see, probably see more changes as a result of taking something that's a book and turning it into a multi-episode series. We'll see things, changes that are made in the name of, well, we wanted this to feel like a complete episode, or we, or we wanted this episode, we wanted episode two of the Horse and His Boy to have a a, a great, satisfying ending. Um, even if it has a cliffhanger. Um, so that's something to keep in mind, that uh, the process of adapting something into an episodic story might mean more changes. Um, but yeah, this is something I still don't have. My wife is obsessed with it. She was, uh, she's still, she's actually been like kind of writing her pitch for what she thinks like a Narnia series could be. And she's been obsessed re- recently with- um, <laughs> That's awesome. How you would do it. And we talked about like, Horse and Boy, would it be better is like, just hypothetically is a-, a a uh, two, three, or four-part story. What what would work better for Horace and his boy? And we talked about different possibilities. And maybe one of these days I'll talk about uh, ideas we have for the Horace and his boy in particular. Um, but uh, yeah, I I'm still kind of puzzled by the whole movies plus series. Yeah, that thing. makes I make I don't understand what they're getting at at all. But I yeah, guess we'll find I'm out. Not, I'm not alarmed <laughs> by it. I really am just sitting back, going, "Okay, I want to get more information because yes. I don't quite see how this is all going to fit together." Yes, um, willing to so we'll hold out judgment. I'm just very curious. All right, moving on to our next point. This is also from uh, Jonathan Paravel. He says, keep the innocent, naive dialogue that many of the Narnians speak in the books. For example, lines that would sound sound dumb in our world, but just sound like creatures honestly trusting in Aslan. By Jove. (laughs) By Jove, he's right. I think part of this is, and I'm just kind of speaking off the top of my head, I feel like some of this has to do with, it sounds dumb to us, because I think maybe it's some of it is like the time period in which it was written. Um, diff- I mean, people have not always spoken with the same whatever that we use now. Like there are, you know, styles for books and for different people that are simpler, if that makes sense. Um, so as some of it in the movies, I feel like they were just updating it. So it just sounded a little more familiar to people. Um, but as far as this, the, the innocentness, I think, yeah, for sure. Um, especially for a lot of the creatures, like they, that is an aspect of Narnia, which they did have that trust in Aslan and they did, they were very innocent in that sense about it. Um, so by trying to make them, you know, a little more street, street, street wise, wow, I can't talk right now. Um, you kind of lose that aspect of like pureness, wholesomeness. I don't really know what I'm trying to get at, but does that make sense to you? 
Yeah, I, I think, uh, for, first off, first part, what you're saying is it's one thing to see something on the page. It's another thing yes. to have a real freedom. Yeah, it does sound, it definitely translates it. differently, for sure. But I I think there is something to what Jonathan Paravel is saying here, in that, um, especially, he highlights lines about trusting in Aslan. Um, and um, that it's, uh, that kind of absolute trust in Aslan can come across as very cheesy, if if you're not... Um, careful, and this is not a reason not to do it. This is a reason to uh, be careful and do your best. Understand that if you can make some of this naive dialogue sound believable, that's magic. When you can take something that people would ordinarily sneer at, but make it, but say it with a straight face and be sincere and make them believe in it, that's what people want. I think people want to believe in this stuff. Yes. But it's it's difficult, you know, even for yeah, yeah, for any of us. It's difficult for it to not come across as cheesy. Yeah. But if you can say, okay, how can we do this? But rather than just shy away from it and give up um, to say, how can we work this to make it be believable? Like, I think that's the reason why Christopher Reeve's performance as Superman is the best superhero performance ever. Because he does and says and wears the cheesiest things, but he does it with a straight face and is completely sincere about it mm-hmm. and makes you believe in something as ridiculous as Superman. He makes you buy it. At least for two hours when you're watching it, you buy into it. Yeah. And you kind of forget that it's kind of forget that it's cheesy for a moment. Well, like so the, I would just say, yeah. yeah do it with a do it just do it with a straight face. Yeah. I was gonna say, like the thing that comes to mind is like the beavers in the Walden Land Witch and Wardrobe. I think in the book they that I think they have that more pure, innocent kind of vibe. Whereas in the movies, uh, at least Mr. Beaver comes across as a little more I don't know what the comedic. word comedic. Not or or sarcastic, even not not even. Yeah, but, all, but almost winking at the camera and being like, "Hey, we're we're not all this complete faith in Aslan and excitement about Aslan." You know, don't don't take it too seriously, okay? We're just kidding around yeah. here. A li- there's that little bit yeah, that's it, going on under underneath the surface. Yeah, like almost don't do that. Condescending Netflix. in a way, like when he's talking to the Pevensies, whereas you don't get yes. that sense in the books at all. So maybe that's just a just not adapting the beavers well. Maybe that's just a, just that in and of itself, it, the, what uh-huh. the issue is. But, um, yeah, if they could kind of... I think it's... Yeah, well, like you said, just do it, just commit to it, and don't apologize for it. Yeah, I, I think that's the larger that's the larger point here, I think, is don't wink at the camera and say, hey, this is a little silly, isn't it, in any way. Just say, this is completely real. It may seem, like, simple or childish or naive... But just say it with a straight face and refuse to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And that, that takes courage. Because if it doesn't work, the result is it comes across as cheesy. And people write you off. So it takes courage and confidence to do that. And I'm asking Netflix to have some courage, have some confidence, have some ambition adapting some of the greatest works of children's literature ever. Is that asking for too much? That's not asking okay. for too much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, another one from Jonathan Paravel. This is an interesting one. Um, Jonathan Paravel says, I am okay with setting England and America in the present-day setting, even though I prefer the Ooh. 1940s setting. If they make it current day, I would want... Uh, if they make it current day, I would want the artists to avoid tacky things like cheeseburgers for the Turkish delight. <laughs> I want them to avoid tacky pop culture things that would become dated in 20 years' time. I want these adaptations to become classics. So let's focus on the first part uh, of that. Uh... Um, the idea of <laughs> setting... And I know where you're going with this. I think I'll go first here. Okay. Uh, the idea of setting 
Narnia in present? What if we had an adaptation where it was set in modern times? So here's obviously probably everyone listening, and I can tell you, your your knee-jerk reaction is no, no, no. That would be terrible. That would be a horrible idea. Um, now, ch- cheeseburgers instead of Turkish Delight notwithstanding. Um, let's think about – keep in mind that when Lewis published The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he was not writing a period piece. He wrote something – like it was published in 1950, and it took place during World War II. So he was writing about something that happened very, very recently. So in, in, in a way, could you, could you argue that it is more true to what Lewis was doing to say, okay, let's tell this story again, but let's do what Lewis did. Let's reimagine it in our current time and take all the themes and ideas that Lewis was writing about and do what he did, apply them to today. Lewis didn't write a period piece. It's a period piece to us now, of course, <laughs> cause, and, and, cause, because 70 years have gone by. But that's not what Lewis did. So I, on paper – intellectually that's how i feel that or that's what i think that okay it would be completely valid to approach this as a present day for that reason and apply all of lewis's themes that the world needs to hear have it have it have it have a contemporary setting i honestly intellectually do believe that but my heart doesn't feel the same way it it, uh, it seeing all these characters in like a modern context it's hard to imagine me being able to get on board with that. I would love to be I would love to be wrong. I would love to see this is so awesome. We'll always have those books by C.S. Lewis. We talk about making changes to the books, but they don't actually change anything. I'll go I, I, I could go open up my copy of Dawn Treader right now. There's no green there's no green mist in there. Okay. Um the movies are the movies, the books are the books. And if they make a modern version of it, they, hey, they did something different with it where they took some of the characters and the themes they applied them to today instead of making them a period piece. That would be awesome. I just, I just can't imagine that actually happening, though. Yeah. But I would love to be surprised. I'd be very surprised if they could. Well, of course I would. I'd be very surprised <laughs> if they could surprise me. It just like, <laughs> to me, Narnia, but in particular, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's not just Narnia that is impacted by the the time in which it was written. The whole story of the Pevensies is so very much like tied into their current their time and what they were going through um I mean obviously you could you know update it and you could swap out you know getting sent to the country to escape World War II bombings for uh you know, being it was an earthquake. You know, or, there was a verse, a script done in the '90s, I think it was, that had an earthquake yeah. instead of a World War II. Or you know, having Gresham to no to too. leave LA for uh, Montana <laughs> because you know you got to get out, you know, from the pandemic. I mean, don't don't put it past <laughs> people, guys. I mean, I'm just saying, like, there's obviously you can update it, but I think, like you said, Lewis, he wasn't writing a period piece. He was writing what was what people had gone through it was very topical it was extremely relevant in terms of like people could relate to the Pevensies because they themselves had gone through that I don't no, think not that World War II is a huge part of the line the witch in the wardrobe you know it's it, it's it, not it's the but setting it takes it, place in yeah it's the setting but also like I think some of those things impact how 
the story goes and how characters choose to act. And maybe I'm kind of drawing a bit from like the Walden film because they definitely leaned into that a lot more. But that was one of the things about the Walden film that I really loved and appreciated was the fact that instead of just quickly glossing over the impact of war that it had had on the kids, it leaned into it and it acknowledged it. And it it used that to help de- it, yeah. to develop the characters, which I actually really appreciated. Um, mm-hmm. I thought that was really great. And now it's kind of hard for me to, like, obviously you could do it, but I, come on, something. No. Yeah, my no. My 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 head is in this conceptually. My heart is saying no, no, no where i'm at right now not in this Um, series maybe like you know after this is like once we get a good seven book adaptation that we can you know take and appreciate then go get mm -hmm. creative with other things you know like (laughs) go have fun i guess but let's for this one like we just we want it to be good (laughs) (laughs) that's our profound word of the day we want it to be good guys netflix make it good oh man all right. Our, speaking of having fun. Yes. Speaking of having fun, our next point also comes from Jonathan Paravel. And he says, I hope there are no cameos of actors from other adaptations. I don't think it will work and it would make it a bit cheesy for me. Um, I, How would you feel? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it would make it feel cheesy. I just don't really see the point. Um, I don't think either adaptations that have been made are or what, what's the word? They're not so ingrained in the public collective mind that people would even recognize a Walden actor or a BBC actor, um, let alone appreciate it. So I just don't see how that would be Well, maybe useful. that's good. They, they, the, the, so then they won't be distracted by it. Maybe that's good. But for the eagle-eyed fan, it would be a little Easter egg there. Like, for example, if you have, a, you know, so the Pevensies are being loaded onto the train and we see um, uh, we in the, in the background we see uh, um, there's Anna Popowell or something playing one of the moms loading their kids on there, or there's uh, um, you know so, so minor roles, or maybe you know when they suppose you know the Pevensies go back through the wardrobe and they see their older selves. What if they got the original four Pevensies who are now old enough to play the older <laughs> Pevensies? Um, yeah. So it would be something like that where it wouldn't be stop the story or wouldn't be having. You know, uh, necessarily have the, the characters they played in the Walden movies, or what if you? Hey, what, what if they have the mom of the Pevensies again, and it's Anna Popowell, for example, who's, who's gets to play the mom this time? Yeah, um, I guess. What if you did something like that? I'm like, I think that's what they're talking. About. I think that could be fun. I think it'd be fun, um, but I, I think it would even better if they if they ca- happen to cast Walden actors, but not for the the wink wink cameo aspect, but literally because they're good actors and we want to see them again just act like you know will Mos like if will mosley wants to you know be involved in the future narnia projects but as a completely different character because of his his talent go play for a centaur, it maybe yes play a centaur <laughs> i don't know whatever floats his boat. i'm just saying like i think that would be cool but that's just me uh-huh as long as you can make sense, like I, I don't think it hurt anything at all that it, uh, on the in the Walden version on the train they have the kids of the actress that played Susan in the BBC version, and very few people noticed that 
that's okay. They, they have their one shot where we see them. And people who didn't know that, they weren't distracted by it. It was just part of the story. But if you did know it, that was kind of cool. So as long as you're not stopping the movie and saying, look, it's Georgie Henley or whatever, <laughs> um, then I think that could be fun. I have no objection to it personally. Yeah. Yeah, That's, which I think I, I suspect is the concern Jonathan's getting at is that it would be cheesy if it was yeah. too obvious and obnoxious. Yeah, I just don't think that any of the actors from the Walden series are quote unquote famous enough that like people it would it would be something that would be super distracting unless you were a exactly. major and, fan. And that's a good unless thing. Unless it was and like Tilda Swinton. Thing. Like I, that would be kind of hard. I, I admit she would be really difficult to put anywhere without it being super obvious that's literally that's the only person i can think of that right. is so quintessentially like that her that is her character that that just what if wouldn't what work. if you had james mcavoy play tumnus again but now he's older so he would be closer to the tumnus that people because everyone you know he's certainly in the movie he was a lot younger than everyone imagined tumnus being so now that he's aged up 20 years or so what if you put him back in there and he'd be closer to the tumnus everyone imagined i mean he could be and we already know he can play tumnus exactly i mean I, I wouldn't have a problem with that i just i have a feeling that they'll probably go for a young tumnus for the same reason that they did with the first one fair enough there was a reason that was a calculated choice we talked about it in our commentary, yes. right? Yeah. All right, moving on. Jonathan Paravel again. Again. Uh, Jonathan writes, I want them to make all seven. Therefore, I agree with the fans who say they should make them in chronological order because then we would get both the magician's nephew and horse and his boy within the first three stories, being two of the three stories we haven't seen on film yet. Um, so, um, so I think what Jonathan's getting at here is if we do... You know, there's this whole discussion about what order will Netflix uh, do the stories in, um, and one in the argument. I, and I have a number of arguments for what I think they should do, but Jonathan's putting forth here is that well, if they do chronological order, if if they only get three if it gets stories canceled. in, <laughs> if, if, if it get if, if the same thing that happens with the Walden movies happens again with Netflix, where they stop after three, at least we'll see Magician's ah. Nephew and Horse and His Boy, and we haven't seen those movies. Come yet. on, that's such and a defeatist I, attitude. <laughs> We're going to get but them all this it, time, you guys. It shouldn't matter. <laughs> but uh, exactly. Um, but uh, but I, I, I've seen a number of fans express that in different ways where it's um, like, uh, okay, we've gotten several versions. Like, you know, BBC made it to Silver Chair. We've gotten several versions of the first few stories. Let I want to see some of the other books on screen. And I think that's perfectly uh, legitimate. Um, I do think I do favor doing at least starting with The Magician's Nephew. Uh, like if they're doing a season, for a series, for example, I've talked about this before. I don't have to elaborate on it too much, but I do. Uh, I'm, I'm on board with. Um, let's do the magician's nephew in line the witch and the wardrobe. Maybe a season one because um, the like imagine the trailer for the Chronicles of Narnia season one, mm-hmm. and they could tease discover the origin of the wardrobe. Dun, dun, and they, dun. You, they, you would see <laughs> yeah scenes from the line the witch and the wardrobe because that's the iconic story. You figure they probably feel like they had no choice but to start with that one form or another. But if you release that with the magician's nephew, then you're getting all this backstory and all these elements of the line, the witch and the wardrobe, like Jadis and the lamppost and the wardrobe and the origin of Narnia and all that, that you didn't know. So it's filling in things about the line, the witch and the wardrobe, this famous story that, that a lot of people didn't necessarily know. And so I think that'd be a great way to kind of have their cake and eat it too, where they can have this fresh start that's distinct from the Walden movies, but also we're getting the line, the witch and the wardrobe mm. in there. Um, so I think that, uh, 
that's the main reason why I would say chronological order, at least starting with Magician's Nephew, might be the way to go uh, with these Netflix adaptations. Yeah, I think if they chose to go with chronological order, it would be, like you said, it would be a chance to differentiate themselves from the prior adaptations because they're starting with something so different. Um, I still, my gut feeling tells me that they won't. It will start with Line the Witch and Roger because they always have before. And it's really the Narnia story that has the most mainstream recognition. So if you're starting to launch a series and to really get it off the ground on a super strong foot, you start with the one that people know. It's like Lord of the Rings. You start with Fellowship of the Ring and you move forward. You don't start with the Cimmerillion. You don't start with the Hobbit. You start with... Lord of the Rings, because that is the quintessential story. And then once that has become ingrained in the collective mind, then you can move on to everything else. That's just but my feeling. But don't you think that like people like people are like the line the witch and the wardrobe is fairly ingrained into pop culture. You would agree. I would right? agree, yes. So don't you think that those people who have seen at least one version, probably more, of the line the witch and the wardrobe now see in the advertising, they're saying, oh, and of course, they're, they're also seeing the lamppost and Tumnus. They're seeing the scenes that they're familiar with, but they're also seeing, you know, a pre-White Witch Jadis. And they're seeing, you know, you'll see the creation of Narnia and hinting that you'll discover the origin of the wardrobe. Oh, all these things about the story I know that I actually don't know. And to me, that seems like a way to ride that line I mean, of giving people something fresh, but also... It's got the the brand recognition of the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Yes and no, because while I, I agree that there is brand recognition, I don't think it's so much that it would be enough to captivate the kind of audience that they want. Like as much as we want to believe that the line, the witch in the wardrobe, like the movie and then also the books is like this thing that everybody knows about and they're extremely familiar with. It's not. And they're not, and so you. St- there's, there's a, the, I think it it's is. well known enough it is, to where you can. But it also, if you're trying a, to, a, st- a lot of people <laughs> are familiar with the story. At least they're Sorry. familiar, but mm-hmm. like it's not the quite the same as like you can say like Star Wars, and people are like, oh yeah, Star Wars, lightsabers, Jedi. Darth Vader. Star Wars done. is like the top of like everything though. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I, yeah. I just, I just think like from a like financial slash marketing perspective, I, I think you, it would be hard pressed to not go with the safe bet just mm-hmm. to make sure that you can get it off the ground and get your ball rolling. Um, however, now if, if Netflix is so confident in this as a series and they are so confident in the work that they're going to put out and the quality and they know that it's going to get a fan base regardless, then by all means go for it. Go for Magician stuff. I just don't know if they will do that. See, so I'm saying there's these two possible minefields they could fall into. One of them is, there's this tension of we feel like we got to get the line the witch in the wardrobe because that's the most memorable, that's the most iconic, that's going to get people's attention the most. But also, we have to worry about this feeling of, oh, this again. And both of those are valid concerns. Um, so I think having Magician's Nephew and Wardrobe, like season one of the Chronicles of Narnia is the Magician's Nephew and, then, and the line the witch in the wardrobe. 
I think that's a way to Brit to to address both of those concerns. Essentially, a fr- something fresh, but also, um, you know, and emphasizing probably in the adaptation, really emphasizing the aspects that are relevant to *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, just in the same way that the Hobbit movies really to varying degrees of success, mostly not very good, uh, <laughs> emphasized the parts that were relevant to Lord of the Rings and even injected new things into it. Oh, God. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it can be done. Example. And I'm like, it definitely is not okay. a bad thing. I think, like, for all the reasons you said, it could be very sure, okay. successful. I just, I feel like it won't. Like, and not that it won't okay. be successful. I just feel like they won't go for that. But we'll find mm-hmm. out. We will find right. out. All right. All right, so moving on to our next uh, wish, again, from Jonathan Paravel. He says, I want it to be fresh. It should feel like a reboot and should not look like the same Narnia as the Walden films. I want it to feel more like Narnia. First Mm -hmm. reaction, I agree, absolutely. And I don't think there's much uh, chance of it not feeling fresh. Like I think the Netflix team will work very hard to make sure. We're just sure. assuming it's a. We're, we're assuming, by the way, that they're starting from scratch. We don't know for sure they won't just pick up her Walden left off with silver chair. But I it does think seem that's pretty extremely likely. unlikely. Um, I, I would agree, especially if they have the right to all seven books and they want to do like sure. series and films. They're going to do the whole thing, which means they're not going to draw on the Walden whatsoever. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So yeah, I totally agree. They're gonna they're gonna work very hard to make sure that their Narnia looks and feels very different. And I think that will, I mean, that will happen anyway, just because it's not, you know, the Narnia that Adam at Andrew Adamson had in his head, you know, if Andrew Adamson's not there, it's not going to be the same Narnia from the ground up. And I think that's totally fine. And I think it'll be really good to see a different take. Um, So I definitely think it will feel very fresh and different. Um, And then, you know, wanting it to feel more like Narnia, that kind of you know, piggybacks off of the, you know, the discussion that we had earlier of like, you know, wanting it to capture that essence of the atmosphere and the feel of Narnia, which we already covered. But I think that there is a good chance. I don't think it will feel like Walden. I I really don't. Yeah, I I, I think they would be trying hard to set themselves apart. I think I really just caught it just now reading uh, Jonathan's comment again. He says he doesn't want it to look like Walden. He wants it to feel more like Narnia, mm-hmm. and, and implying that Walden w- was was fundamentally missing something. And I think we're just talking about the I, I, the look. Yeah, and, and, and that's easily that remedied Walden, by just choosing where you decide to shoot and where you're where you're going on location for. Also, just in terms of like visual. Well, more than that, here's what I would say. Um, as as a, let me give a specific example. So the White Witch's castle, the Pauline Baines illustration looks like a very traditional medieval castle. And the, the what we got in the movie was this very imaginative icicle thing that looks much more like fantasy. I would like to see them, if we're looking at, I like to see them find a more of a middle ground. Like what I want for, for example, the White Witch's castle just to be a normal castle. Maybe not, but I would like to see them go a step towards that. Um, I would like to see... Something that is in every aspect, with the armor and the world of Narnia in general, something that feels rec- more recognizable. Like, oh, this is a medieval, you know, English, you know, world, but just with a slight, a slight nudge sideways to say, but it's fantasy. It's something different. Yeah. Like maybe only almost going for like an, a, a castle that's been modified with yeah, ice. but but. 
I, I, I want them to have the courage to almost not be too imaginative in the design of Narnia and have it feel a little more familiar. But just with this slight, um, just add a, a little fantasy. That's something that at first glance you recognize as something familiar you've seen in history books or whatever, mm-hmm. but has this slight fantasy edge to it j- j- just to set itself apart. Um, so I, 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 that's what I, that's where I say the Walden movies, a lot of it doesn't really feel like Narnia to me. Um, and where I think they could kind of get it a little bit yeah. closer to that's that. A, so that'd, be, that'd be my suggestion. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. It's almost like how like the BBC series in a sense almost captures that a tiny bit better because they obviously didn't have a huge budget. They didn't have huge production value. Obviously, a Uh lot of the special effects were kind of ridiculous, but the fact that Uh they were shooting mostly i i mean i they definitely had sound stages but they were do they did a lot of location mostly real locations and mm-hmm. things that was just normal to for people to have because they were just using what was there um did lend that very kind of real feeling to it mm-hmm. so right yeah kind of like i so, think yeah. a, a happy medium between the two like not maybe quite as fantastic as walden and not as low budget as with, BBC, like kind of in the middle. Yeah, I, I think with Walden, they felt this pressure to make everything super amazing, <laughs> super cool, and fantastical, and they're trying to live up to the amazing visuals of Lord of the Rings. And I just don't think they could stomach just having a traditional medieval castle uh, for for the White Witch. It's like, or even where the single combat takes place, it had to be this cool rocky temple area, and it couldn't just be the little boxing ring they make in the book. Um, so I think I would say have the confidence to be kind of simplistic and familiar and not to, we have to give people something they've never seen before. And actually, I think a lot of the things that make Narnia appealing is that it has it feels familiar. It feels like a lot of these old, old fa- out of fashion values are back and they're real and they're relevant again. It's part of the appeal of, of Narnia. So I'd say to Netflix, have the confidence to not overthink the way Narnia looks mm. and don't think you have to blow people's minds <laughs> with something they've but never do, seen before. But don't. <laughs> it, it, it's more like ha- have the confidence to give people something that feels nicely familiar. There you go. Nicely familiar. Yeah. The tagline of Narnia. Let- <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, 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 that's the poster. <laughs> the Chronicles of Narnia coming from Netflix. Nicely familiar. <laughs> there you go. It's perfect. <laughs> So this next one is uh, this is a tricky one uh, that you, you kind of dread talking about uh, in some ways. But if they ever do do make a Horses Boy adaptation, we'll have to really get get into the weeds on this. Yes, <laughs> um, Jonathan Jonathan Paravel writes. I think they should keep the Kellerman culture as the Arabian Night style culture. We have never seen a screen adaptation of The Horse and His Boy, but maybe when we see Erebus and Lacerline in action, we will realize that some in the nation are bad. Some are good, or, or that, that some in that nation are bad and some are good, like in every place. Uh, and Re- Rebecca Walton says, also, I really want to see them use great seamstresses and a variety of inspirations to make the costumes. For the horse and his boy, I've always thought they should use a ba- should use Bollywood inspired costumes. Um, so the Middle Eastern, you know, Arabian Nights uh, a- a- aesthetic that Lewis describes for the Kalerman culture, especially in the horse and his boy. Is that uh, a thing they should honor in a modern day adaptation of the horse and his boy? Um, 
My opinion, the short answer is probably not. Um, For the similar reason that, well, like, for example, let me give an example. In the silver chair, there's a part where, you know, that they want to, Puddle Glum is explaining, oh, we're going to have to pretend like we're happy to be at the giant city. And he says, we should all act gay. Now, I think if they do a moderate, now that's completely a completely a valid word choice. That's complete. It does, in fact, describe that's completely fine. But I would say if Lewis wrote The Silver Chair uh, today, probably would have chosen a different word because it has a different kind of because it it primarily means homosexuality today. It doesn't just mean happy or cheerful. So um, I just think that it's if in understanding what's the author's intent, it's clear to say, well, if he read it today, he probably would have chosen a different word. Um, not that his original choice is wrong, but just the cultural context has changed. So I do think that um, uh, at the end of the day, I don't want anything. I don't want a needless distraction in these stories. Um, if if having that um, Middle Eastern aesthetic in there, especially with the way um, with what's what's been in the news the past couple of decades, especially, um, and just the increased awareness, I think, of uh, the the subtly, often subtle ways racism can be expressed, especially in entertainment. Um, if that is something that is going to be a distraction for someone, in my in, in my opinion, it's not worth it. I want people to engage with these stories. I think that. Like when we talk about the atmosphere of Narnia, there's things that people, I think, our world needs right now. Um, and I want them to connect with it. And if having that Middle Eastern aesthetic is going to be a distraction, in my mind, it's not absolutely essential to the story. Just chuck it. This is not a case where, you know, um, having Aslan um, be so, like, be so all-powerful is, I don't know, it's kind of distracting or offensive or whatever. Um like, can't they have Aslan be like, you know, like, can't he lose a few times or can't he make a few big mistakes? Or that would be like, uh, sorry, that if you're distracted by that, I'm sorry. That's essential to what makes it Narnia, that we have this uh, is not safe but good and all-knowing character in Aslan under, uh, behind everything. But the Middle Eastern kind of sense of the Calarman culture, I don't think is on that level. Yeah. So in my opinion, if it's going to be a distraction, which I think it probably would be, just change it. It's it's not worth it. There are things worth, there are hills worth dying on. I yes. don't think this is one of them. <laughs> so for me, I think the biggest thing that is the important thing to remember is that there should be a distinct difference between the, the culture of Narnia and the culture of Kellerman. Um, I, I think how you choose to portray the culture is completely up for grabs i don't think that in and of itself was important but i think the important thing is that they should feel extremely distinct um, because you see especially in horse and his boy there's a thread of like the difference between the two and them not quite understanding each other and having to learn about each other etc cetera, etc cetera. i think that is the the more important thread to keep and i think that whether or not they just you know there's so many the thing is is like culture in and of itself is so rich and varied that you can take inspiration from so many different cultures and create something that is not a stereotype and you can do it well and still invoke the feeling that you want to invoke with it being respectful and not 
offensive to anyone. Um, so I don't think that in and of itself, like it doesn't need to like fit into a certain box as long as the kind of idea and theme is there. And like you said, that it's not, the point is it should not, it, if that's going to be distracting, it doesn't need to be there. Um, it's not that hard to make something that is not distracting and yeah. uh complex yeah. and varied and right good and that's a great point about uh the, the culture seeming kind of alien and different um especially to shasta that's the important thing i mean the horses boy one of the key ideas is that this sense of unbelonging and you start reading horse and his boy after finishing silver chair which of course that's the order you're reading them in and it's kind of like whoa where is everybody <laughs> it's, you're in this completely far away from narnia completely foreign com- where am i you know and so being thrown into this complete other culture is important to the theme of the horse and his boy and shasta's sense of i feel like i belong somewhere else um and um, to be clear, though, I don't think Lewis. I really don't think Lewis's. Um, for reasons we could get into, we've done a, pod, a podcast on this. Uh, I don't think Lewis did anything wrong. Um, we have a lot, we have different characters, like, like like Jonathan Parable pointed out. Some of them good, some of them bad. It's not that Cal Arman is inherently bad per se. I don't think Lewis did anything bad. It's just that if he wrote it today, he might have handled it a little bit differently. Right. Yep. Uh, and that's and just a different like of the time. Was, yeah, and so I think that's something that. Um, we should have a cultural awareness about, yeah, uh, and just just find a different way to do it. And I think you can do that and still have something that is essentially the horse and his boy. All right. So moving on to our next um, wish, which comes from Rebecca Walton, and she says, "I would also love to see the use of real castles. I think they they should use Iceland and Ireland to shoot a lot of scenes instead of New Zealand." Um. First of all, I got to say, Iceland is beautiful um i've only spent one day there and i would love to go back and um i'm all for like just iceland in general i don't know how i feel about it as being narnia specifically um but i think i don't know it it invokes those kind of like misty silver cherish north vibes um but that's literally all I know about that. I've never been to Ireland. And of course, we've all seen plenty of New Zealand thanks to, you know, Lord of the Rings and everything else. So, um, I mean, I've got no p- complaints with any of that. I just think a lot of, I think it's actually kind of funny. And the two, because, first two Narnia movies. Yeah, yeah, I think a lot of people now feel like New Zealand is kind of like the tired option because it's got, I feel like it's gotten used so much in, um, big movies that it's like oh new zealand again it's it's a small island how more varied can it possibly get which i think is hilarious which i don't which i'm sure isn't true i'm I'm sure sure it's not true at all i just think it's funny that people are like oh they're shooting in new zealand oh oh, okay yeah Yeah, I, i would i would just say uh i would echo the use of i would i would love the idea of using real castles perhaps enhancing them some way maybe with cgi to make them make them unique and not too recognizable as existing landmarks in our world. That's a really cool idea. I don't know how practical that would be. But in general, I would say I love the idea of using um, real locations as much as they can if the budget allows for it. Um, they might do, I wonder if they'll do something like what the Mandalorian did where they have that, um, LCD screen, really innovative, uh, technique that's sort of a middle ground between relocation and CGI. Yeah. I'm not super Um, familiar with that, but I've got no complaints about the Mandalorian, so (laughs) (laughs) it must be working. Yeah. But, but, 
Yeah, but if they can use uh, a way to do go on real locations yeah. as much as possible, uh, I'm 100% in favor. I can just sense when, there, even if it's a really good green screen, it just doesn't work for me. I just know, I can feel in my, my bones, the actors aren't really there yeah. right now, so I would love that. Um, so yeah, 100% uh, in favor yeah. of that. I have to say, this is something that I just remembered like when we were talking about New Zealand. One thing that in the Lord of the Rings trilogy that I appreciated about the fact that they did pretty much all of their location shooting in New Zealand is that because it was in the same roughly geographical region, it it had a a continuity, had a symmetry where you could believe that this was actually one place. Um, you know, obviously completely different regions, but one like place. And it wasn't like you were jumping from like the deserts of Arizona to Switzerland, the Alps in Switzerland to, um, you know, the Rocky crags of somewhere else. You could, you could believe that these places were all together because they were. So that being said, I'm a, I think where, if they choose to go on location and I hope they do, um, I am a big fan of it being roughly in the same kind of general, area so that way things kind of melt together and you don't have to do quite so much um doctoring of things to make it look like oh it's realistic that this place would only be like a few days ride from this place like with uh with narnia they didn't do that you know they shot in a couple different continents especially with french caspian you see this she shot on a couple different continents and yeah and even with the news with the new zealand locations in the line of which the wardrobe there's this feeling of they were chose, oh, this looks pretty, let's do this. Whereas in Lord of the Rings, which I, sorry to compare everything to Lord of the Rings, but in Lord of the Rings, it feels like there was a lot of th- more thought given into what's the look we want for this scene or how does this tie to this? And with Narnia, I think they chose locations because, oh, this looks pretty. Sure, it could be Narnia. Um, so there is an art to choosing locations and making them feel like they're together, even though they actually are. Yeah. You still have to work to make it convince the audience they are together. Yeah. Um, but speaking of convincing the audience, um, Jonathan Paravel writes, here's another one. I can't think of a good alternative for Aslan besides CGI. It works so well in most of Aslan's scenes in the Walden trilogy, although I admit he is too large in their Prince Caspian, and the CGI is not as good in that one. He looked rougher and dirtied up as a real lion is. So as far as CG Aslan, I personally can't... Um, so funny how far we've come. I remember first hearing they were going to make a completely CG Aslan, and I went, "What? There's no way that's impossible. He's way too complex." Yeah. You know, well, at the, that time it was the, the hair and the fur. You know, and and now it's like uh, they could probably do Aslan in a, a bubble, a CG line in a bubblegum commercial. Um, oh gosh! But um, but uh, uh, if there's a way they can do a uh, a combination of maybe. Like I would, I I'd be open to experimenting with maybe the approach they take and say where the wild things are, where they have animatronics and people in costume and puppeteers, but with a CG enhancement, just to take what is already a decent effect and really sell it. So CG plays a supporting role. Um, that could be very complex, um, but I would be up for them. I'd like to see some experimentation here. And I, I'm not closed off. To, I know people have the BBC in their heads, um, <laughs> but I would not be closed off to saying, is there a, re- a, a real way we can do, a, a more creative way we can do Aslan? But if CGI is the only way to do it, then yeah, they got to do that. Well, as as long as whatever they do isn't like the Cats movie, I think we will all be okay. 
Oh, so is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, gym fan. I have to live with that image now. <laughs> I'm, of, I'm just uh, saying, there are worse things than uh than what we got so far. <laughs> it's like the. I mean, we've had like a. a, a a humanoid Aslan in the that 1960s black and white adaptation where only only like two episodes have survived. It's happened before, but if they, you just imagined a, a, a version that's basically that, but way more nightmare inducing. Yeah, <laughs> um, pretty much. So, oh my gosh, I'm I'm picturing like <laughs> a, a, a version of Liam Neeson with the, with, with the, his uh, face, uh, but then but the lion ears and Jim Fan. Th- this this. <laughs> There are, there are children listening, Jim Fan, probably. <laughs> Why do you have to go there? Oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it kind of makes me cringe to know that the, um, the technology that was developed to make Aslan probably contributed to that artistic mm. decision in that movie. Yeah. And to, to, to everyone, fair, the, we are all so sorry. Let me just say something. As someone that works in the you know video production industry, I just want to go off topic slightly here really quick and just say – the visual effects in cats, not that I've seen the whole thing, but the visual effects in, of cats are not bad. That is to say, they were expertly done by very talented artists who did yes. a nice job. The, prob- yes. the problem with cats, it's just a bad artistic decision yes, that, to have precisely. humanoid it have humanoid cats in there, it, but it, it, on a technical level, they were done at a very high level. They were excellently done. It was just a bad idea to begin with. Yeah. Well, it's, all, I mean, it's it the same thing as like, you can have things that are executed technically well, but they still aren't mm-hmm. the right choice for that situation. Like yeah. an animatronic Aslan could be, in some circumstances could be executed really, really well, but just not work for that character yeah. for that choice because yeah. it, it lacks the maybe the artistic range or whatever. Sure. Um, it speaks to how... Sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I'm not honestly even sold on the concept that Aslan needs to be, quote, unquote, photorealistic. Like, I'm all... Like, mm, maybe it's because I, I have spent a lot of time doing theater and I appreciate the artistic abilities of of like you when you're in a, a, a situation that you have limitation you don't try to make it as realistically as possible instead you just you make it enough so that way people they know what it's supposed to be but then they use their imagination to fill in the rest and it's more of like an artistic stand-in in a way like a, a person who is maybe like to represent you, you you understand like the cat's play for example on on stage you you understand these are representations of cats not yeah. literally half human half cat creatures yes exactly exactly precisely that like it's they're people in unitards with fur but you know okay they're 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 meant to be cats okay i got it my i can i get over that i move on i enjoy the play uh, yeah you know so like i'm not i'm not i think if Someone came up with a good idea and it was executed well. I think I would I think I could live with that. I don't think it has to be like he needs to look real, you know. Um but that's just I Yeah. Yeah. I'll say I want to give this more thought. I, mean, I don't I I don't I think that's what be cuz this idea can be done can be done poorly. I think BBC that's what they were that's what they were going for that, that it was like, <laughs> "Hey, trust us guys. We know it's just a guy in a beaver costume, but go with it." 
and I couldn't go with it. It was weird. Um, I, I I'll say like a I, I, am, <laughs> I am open to come on, coming up with creative solutions for how to portray Aslan. Yeah. Um, I it's I can't think of any off the top of my head. I'd be okay with, <laughs> but I, I I do see what you're saying about rolling with the punches of of the medium that you're in and saying you know if this just if it's just too hard to really make a completely convincing computer-generated Aslan with the budget they have. Because I think even... They did a good job of making a pretty photoreal... Let's say Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, the movie, a pretty photorealistic-looking Aslan. Um, it, technically, it was fine. I just don't know if he really had the... He, di- he didn't have this... It was just he didn't have that something extra, that whoa Yeah. I think element. there was limitations was just, oh, to it's a lion and his it looks ability real. to like act and to portray certain emotion and like body language in ways that we expect but obviously it's like it's a lion so like what is body language i think i think they were limited in that aspect so actually i'd be really interested to see okay knowing what how technology has advanced could you have the same concept but have it be able to have a wider range of um emotion we did see the Lion King live action, live action, your quotes, um, adaptation, <laughs> which gave us pretty photorealistic. Not that I saw the whole thing again. Yeah. Pretty photo, photorealistic looking lions. Um, it, it, they chose to keep the emotions to an absolute minimal so they wouldn't have to compromise on the actual animal anatomy. They could keep it as accurate as possible. So that's one criticism I've heard of that is that they just don't emote at all. So I, I think no one has really nailed talking animals in movies yet. You've had some okay attempts. I think that Narnia is one of the better ones, technically, where I, I think Aslan is. You do have to find that balance of if you express if the, if the emotions are too human and too expressive, then you don't believe it anymore. Yeah, that, you know, it looks a little to, weird. <laughs> you have to you have to bend the anatomy too much, and you just can't quite believe in it. But if it's not there enough, which I suspect is what we saw in the Lion King movie. Well, now I can't connect with the character, so what's the point of having it be talking anyway? So I would I would love it if these Narnia adaptations would be the ones that finally give us the definitive talking animals. That you completely buy as animals, but you completely buy their talking and they feel completely believable. I would love it if Narnia would be uh, the ones to, to finally nail them. Yeah, so we'll see. Really cool. We'll see, Netflix. Yep. It's all on you now. <laughs> <laughs> not my problem. Yeah, not my problem. I don't know. I, I feel like, it's, uh, like oh, I get to throw out all these ideas, ideas, but at the end of the day, I'm not the one who actually has to decide how to do it. So We just get to complain about exactly. it. Exactly. I just get to complain about it. <laughs> all right, moving on. Our next also comes from Jonathan Paravel. Jonathan Paravel says, I simply... I don't think the climax of every story should be a battle. Amen. Preach it, brother. Preach it. Um, Amen. Uh, how many times have we said this in one form or another on this podcast? And I just love the simple way that JP expressed that. Um, there is this um, assumption that that has to be that way. And I think the silver chair in particular is one that could be uh, a candidate for can we shove a battle in here at the end? Um uh, my hope is that um, the we're assuming more limited budget of Netflix will be an asset here, that they will be forced to think of a more creative uh, s- solution than just let's just have people 
shoot at each other for a while and hope that people don't get bored by it. Um, but are forced to think of a more character-driven emotional climax. And also, n- non-military solutions for things would be really refreshing, I think. Yes. Um, <laughs> the, end of, the end of Prince Caspian, I understand that there's a, ba- there's a battle and a single combat but uh, in the book. But what I remember about the end of Prince Caspian is winning over the hearts of the Telmarine people and the boys being turned into pigs and um, Caspian's nurse and bringing this healing and restoration to the Telmarine people. I don't really remember the military part of it as much. And in the movie, it's just they beat the Telmarines because they hit them with their swords. And that's it. Um, So again, wouldn't it be refreshing? Wouldn't it be refreshing to have just like the monarchy that we can believe in, wouldn't it be refreshing to have non-military solutions to things that are are completely believable? Man, I think our world needs that right now. Mm -hmm. I think it could be, I mean, I mean, it's like, like you said, it's Narnia. It, the stories themselves aren't designed to end with, you know, a big, you know, massive climax. Not all of them. You know, mm-hmm. so it's mm-hmm. it. First of all, it doesn't even need. It doesn't even have. It, it's not even an integral part of the story. Yeah. The fact that there's wars and battles and duels, like you, yeah. you know, you do Voyage of Dawn Treader, and that's just like an adventure. You know. Oh, but they yeah. tried. Uh-huh. They really tried. Um, <laughs> oh, that they, they, they shoehorn that sea serpent battle in there at the end. Absolutely. And I mean, there, there's um, your prime example right there. So anyone from Netflix, if you're listening. It's not necessary. We'll love it anyway. Don't do it. It's it, and honestly, like with battles, it's like at this point, there's not much you can do we haven't already seen. Exactly. It it, it, it it is incredible just how how much you can see on the screen, how much destruction and mayhem, and because we've seen it so many times, you just kind of like, eh. It, it's amazing because yeah. we've seen so much of it. Um, yeah, like char- characters we care about and believe in and are concerned about. That's what it's all about. Yeah, um, for sure. Don't feel like you have to take the easy way out and just shove the battle onto the screen. Like you said, there's so many other ways to resolve conflict. Let's yes. let's show it, please. So I so I've heard. So I've heard. Yes, not that you would know that all that much at the moment. <laughs> all right. So moving on, the next one is a bit of a long one. Um, it, the first bit comes from Jonathan Paravel, and he says, "I think Netflix should keep the elements of the books that are Christian or moral." These books have sold, I'm assuming, over 100 million copies while they included the Christian elements, and therefore, including them is not an automatic bad thing for popularity. Deliberately changing those things would also alienate a large portion of the existing fan base and could cause animosity between the fans and the filmmakers. And then John Kurt. And then there, there's a, yeah, there's a note in there that so John Kurt is a blogger. He's not gotcha. one of our one of our knights or friends of Narnie Web, but he's a blogger. Uh, that emailed me the link to this open letter he wrote to, uh, to, uh, to Netflix about about these adaptations, and I thought he had a nice little. Mm. I'll have to post a, if I remember. I'll post a link to that in in the description. But he posted a nice little, I thought, uh, summary of the spiritual theme. So why don't you go ahead and read uh, John's what he wrote? Yeah, there. he says the spirituality is embedded within the non-religious action. The bravery, treachery, sibling tension, bullying, reconciliation, and forgiveness, which are jam-packed into these stories. Spiritual truth is embedded and woven within each story. Uh, Yeah. Um, I'm kind of formulating my thoughts on the fly a little bit for this, but I do agree that I think 
like John says, and he sums it up really well, the the spirituality of the it it is embedded so much in Narnia that it doesn't have you don't have to put a label on it to say it's Christian or it's this or it's that. It's just it's it's woven in there. Um I like what John says there about it being woven in. Um I think that um yeah to it's woven in there to remove it. It would have to be very carefully surgically removed. I think it's not because it's so fundamental to the story. Um, I think if um, you were talking about, you were talking about making a big deal out of it, which I think Lewis didn't do. Uh, one of Lewis's um, goals for the series was to get past the watchful dragons. This is a phrase he used in an essay he wrote where um, he, what one of the ideas at the end of the day, he didn't write the story because he wanted to communicate some kind of religious truth. That's not the reason he did it, but right. what inspired it, he, he got pictures in his heads. He got pictures in his head. He only had one head. <laughs> um, he got, got, to, my, to, uh, to my knowledge, uh, he, got, he, got, he got pictures in his head and he had to write a story about it. But one of the, one of the ideas he had while he was writing was, could he take um, spiritual truth that people experience intellectually and make them kind of experience it in it's like their raw form. It's almost like, um, and get past the watchful dragons where, um, and that's a phrase he used to basically mean the pressure to feel. Um, so I think that there's a lot of people who fans who are big fans of Narnia and I don't, I wouldn't question that or anything, but I think that there's nothing wrong with this, but if you've read the series and you uh, are attracted to the Christian truths you see, and you kind of read them from the perspective of trying to find them, of, oh, what does this represent? Or um, what was Lewis saying with these things? Um, there may be something to that. But if you did, I think you missed out on what Lewis was trying to achieve with the series for his readers. He didn't necessarily want them to be conscious of it in, in the way that there might be something that they know about intellectually. He wants them to try to experience it without all the usual, what he called stained glass associations that get, bring up your prejudices and bring up your biases or make you yawn. Um, he wanted to like break through all that. Um, it just kind of like it sort of the difference between, Oh yes, I've had a certain kind of food described to me a lot. Oh, this ingredient, this and that Lewis wanted you to get all that knowledge out of your head and just taste it. Um, it's important that it, not be super obvious, actually. Um, it, it, I think there's, I, I, and I, I know that, look, Aslan is a Jesus lion. That's one of the obvious ones. But there's other things we talk about on the podcast all the time, that it's not the fact that it's there that makes it uh, a, a great achievement by Lewis. It's the fact that it's um, done in a way that emotionally resonates. Even if you don't intellectually aware of it, there's spiritual themes that emotionally resonate. Um, I think I know people that whether whether or not you're a Christian or not, Aslan resonates. Um, whether or not they ever pick up on uh, what he's what what his other name is or not, Aslan resonates. And so it's about making the things work on their making the, everything work on its own terms in the story, not trying to preach a sermon. Um, so uh, it's probably necessary to if you're trying to rebuild a car, for example, you probably do have to ha you have to have an idea of well, what exactly went into making it in the first place? What are, what are the mechanics here? So you probably, as a screenwriter, do have to have a knowledge of what's underneath all this so that you can recreate it. But at the end of the day, it's like a magic trick. At some point, the strings have to disappear. It just has, has to be a story and work on its own terms. Yeah. If it's a story and works on its own terms. That's I think key. I think sometimes the impression that I get from some 
things that I've read is that people want it to be so obvious that to anyone who knows anything about anything that when they watch the movie, it's like, uh, Aslan is Jesus. Aslan dying on the stone table is Jesus dying on the cross. Aslan being resurrected is Jesus. You know, they, they want it to be like one for one, exactly, 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 exactly. But it's, I don't think it need, like it, first of all, I don't think that it doesn't have, you don't have to, don't make it more than it is. The way it is in the book, like you said, like C.S. Lewis was working really hard to just have the essence of things in there and let people experience it and not feel like it was being shoved down their throats. Um, I think if you do that, that's really all that's necessary. And then for people who appreciate that, they're going to see it. And then for the people who don't, they're still going to experience the essence of that. And that's really what matters. I think with uh, like with the horse and his boy, for example, Lewis wanted people to experience that feeling of unbelonging, of Shasta's sense of, I was made for something else. And the joy of him discovering, oh, I was made for a purpose. And the joy of his suffering getting explained to him and given meaning. That's There's a spiritual truth there that was underneath that, but Lewis wasn't didn't want you to go, oh yeah, that's like that's like Christianity or that's like the Bible or whatever. Lewis wanted that to the idea to emotionally resonate with you. Maybe someday then you figure out exactly what it is. But that's the most important thing. And I think that as far as being controversial um, or hurting its popularity, I think if you just make the characters emotionally resonate with people and make it work so well and make it work on that level, I don't think they'll mind uh, or maybe they won't even notice. Uh, the, the spiritual themes in there. Engage them emotionally. Make them invest. Um, yeah. Defeat the Watchful Dragons. Yes. All right. Uh, here's another one here. It's an interesting one. We can do really quick, I think. Uh, JP says, I would love to see some 2D or stop-motion animation used, a bit like the story told in Harry Potter number 7. It has its place and would be very welcome. And I don't know quite... Um, that's interesting. I don't know... JP where that would go but that was a cool part of yeah, Deathly Hallows part, sure. uh, part one and if they can find a place uh, to do that I think that would be pretty cool or maybe they could even kind of pay homage in the style to Pauline Bing's illustrations and the way they do it or something um, if it's some, some kind of a flashback uh, maybe when Mr. Tumnus is describing the way Narnia used to be before the White Witch, and you can do this kind of animated sequence to kind of give it that uh, feel more idealistic and not so culty like it is in the BBC version. Um, uh, maybe something uh, kind of along those lines. Um, yeah, I don't know how it would be done, but uh, that could be cool. Yeah. And that's all I can say at this point because I don't have any, sp- any specific ideas. Or maybe, you know, a whole movie. You know, can you imagine like the silver chair in in stop motion animation? Like, I think that would look so cool. There are people, most people listening are probably groaning. Um, (laughs) Stop motion is an acquired taste and there's there's quite a range. I think the stop motion I really like a lot and there's some I don't. Um, But uh, I just think like Puddle Glum would be... I just think for some reason I just got that stuck in my head where I'm like, oh, that would look so cool. And you could make him with all his like marsh wiggle proportions and not have it uh-huh. look weird. Yeah, the, certainly the two of us are more open to an animated Narnie movie than most people. Yeah. Yeah, if there's a place for some kind of 
And now for something totally different, yeah. you know, kind of sequence. I think that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of like going into our last wish, actually, I think this actually ties in perfectly because it was what I was going to say. Um, Darby Summer says, I'm also really looking forward to see how they do the creation of Narnia. I feel like there's no way it will live up to one's imagination, but if they manage to pull that off, I'll be majorly impressed. This is actually something that I think would be so cool to, if they did it, if they could find a way to do it, it, this is a really good opportunity where you could do something very artistic and not, Mm -hmm. it's not meant to be photorealistic, whatever. It's just, it's meant to invoke a feeling of of things becoming alive and and literally going Uh from nothing to everything. That would be a very cool spot to use something really unique and artistic like stop motion or 2d or some i don't even know i just think that would be cool i completely agree i think probably stop motion in particular actually there's a sequence in Coraline uh where it's like the garden that makes kind of the shape of Coraline's face that is i often think of when thinking of an approach they could take to aslan creating narnia if it if it looks kind of um, incongruous with the rest of the movie, that may not be a, such a bad thing. Um, I, we're, we're, we've jumped into a completely different world, and Aslan's creating the world. Like, if it looks like it doesn't quite have, it's not quite obeying the laws of physics from the rest of the movie, Aslan is literally creating the laws of physics right now. <laughs> you know, I think, I think if it looks a little incongruous, I don't, that might be a good thing, actually. And it's one of those things where, you know, Darby says there's no way it can live up to one's imagination. I, if you just try to say, let's have the most epicest CGI sunset and just try to stick with Lewis's description and just make it look re- as realistic as we can, it's like you are pretty much doomed to disappoint. I think you have to throw something unexpected at people. Um, and surprising and engage with them in a different way to get that sense of awe you get from reading the book. So I think we're completely, I think, yeah, the use of stop motion to show the creatures coming out of the ground or the plants coming out or something like that could be a way to do that. Either way, they should think of something, just it will need something really creative in there. It's not as simple as just, well, let's just have CG animals coming out of the ground and have a pretty sunrise or whatever. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't know why this keeps coming to mind. I have not seen this film in 15 years at least, but I don't know if you're familiar at all with the, the film, The Tree of Life. And I don't even I remember what it was about. Oh, there's the dinosaur scene in there, I right? I don't even remember what it was about or what exactly did. I just remember it was evocative is the word I would use. Like the way that they they cut between scenes and then like pictures and clips and things that were it was meant to invoke a feeling. Um and just their use of that was just done in a in a in a way that I had not really seen anything used in that way before so like when i was looking at this question of like oh you know how will they do the creation of narnia and you know make it live up to expectations like for some reason my mind kept coming back to this where it's like maybe it's more about invoking a feeling and you could there's different mediums that you can use that maybe on its own like you know a picture uh, you know a clip of this or picture like that does in, in and of itself does not make sense but when you put it together it invokes the feeling of again thing life being created yeah. from nothing um i i love what you're getting at yeah um i, I want it's probably 
I mean, maybe some Netflix could do. Like, it's probably not something that would fly for a mainstream. It's probably too pot- potentially weird um, to be to appeal to a mass audience. Um, I didn't love. I didn't. I could see it again. I, I didn't love the Tree of Life movie. I didn't I love see it either. I just remember oh, okay. the concept. It just for some reason my mind okay. keeps going there. It was like okay. it was. Is something I'd never seen before where they took random things that were meant to invoke a concept or a feeling. And I was like, huh, okay, okay. I see, I see what they were going for. <laughs> so an example I would go with, maybe to describe kind of what you're talking about, is 2001, which is my favorite movie ever and also was a key source of inspiration for the movie Tree of Life. Mm-hmm. Which um, I've not seen that. And I know you keep telling me I need to. And it's on the list. Well, no, I have not. No, that's not true. I've never told you to watch it because I don't recommend it to many people. <laughs> I feel um, like we had this conversation, probably- though. I distinctly remember us having this conversation. So, because, yeah, you, the, what you're saying, what you're saying right now is like, maybe, because I'm usually very careful when I tell people that my favorite movie is 2001 A Space Odyssey, I'll say, but I'm not saying you should watch it. It's not for most people. That's totally okay. But I'm listening to what you're saying. And I'm like, I wonder if maybe Jim Finn would like 2001. Give it <laughs> and because of that, I guess I won't say what I was going to say. I was going to describe uh, the way it portrays, I won't even say what. But uh, something that it, 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 it's approached to portraying something, especially at the end, that is like, well, there's no way you could ever portray that in a way that would be satisfying if you just do it in a very simple, literal way. So we have to find another way to express it. Um, and But a lot of people watched it and just went, the heck was that? <laughs> um, whereas I get it. And I don't want to describe exactly what it is in case, in case you ever watch it. Um, but yeah, tell me where it's streaming. <laughs> My favorite. Oh, you little <laughs> two thousand one on a phone. Uh, I have a TV. I've got, I've got, I have a TV. I, I just don't have a DVD I, player. Uh, I, I've got the four K UHD. Uh, Next time I'm at your house. And- Come over to my place. And, <laughs> hey, I, the, la, last time I was at your house, I was seeing that movie. I, I drove there because I wanted to see the movie on the big screen, just playing in your area. So you could have come along. That's, that's oh, true. Well. That is that is extremely true now that you mention yeah. it. <laughs> okay. Okay, oh, well. off topic now. But yes, I, I am looking forward to seeing the creation of Narnia. I think there's so many really cool things that they could do. Again, like I think the word you use, literal. Like, don't do it. Don't try and make it literal. I don't think that will work. No ma- it's not possible no because how, it's not possible. No ma- well, it's just no matter how great it looks, it won't be great enough, probably, yeah. if you just take a, liter- a literal approach. Uh, here's a weird example that seems connected. An example I gave someone lately. We were talking about when you try to portray real people in movies. And I was saying I think the the ones that work the, the best are um, where they don't try to portray – get every single de- they don't try to recreate every single detail of that person it's more about getting the essence of them and saying something about them and i think a positive example is uh tom hanks as mr rogers they weren't trying to get the voice and the way he looks just completely perfect it was more about saying something about fred rogers than literally recreating exactly the way he talks um so um yeah so a less literal approach to the creation of narnia i think is the only way uh, you're going to uh, even come anywhere close to meeting expectations. That's probably correct. Yeah, well, I mean, side tangent again, but coming full circle, it's the same thing with uh, like Star Wars, where they have characters of people who 
had passed away and so they chose to cgi them or make them younger or whatever uh-huh. and i'm like that that was too literal for me i think Uncanny i would i would have yeah. preferred to have an actor who invoked the essence the spirit of the other actor and like right. we as an audience will get over it that the fact that they do not look <laughs> the same i think we would have right. had have appreciated the the acting more you know the essence of the character more than the fact that if it was an exact match or not. Anyway, off that soapbox. Right. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> we are indeed done. That is the last one. I want to say a big thank you to our friends and knights of Narnia Web. Yes, thank you uh, guys. Number one for yeah, number one for submitting all those topic ideas. Thank you. And also, of course, for your continued support. We we literally could not have a Narnia Web and we could not have the podcast without you. And it's ex- extremely extremely meaningful. Like I've said in the thank you video, you know, w- whenever there is a new uh, Patreon, I get a little get a little notification on my phone, and it's like, oh wow, there's I'm not the only. I guess it's just a reminder that wow, I'm not the only one that thinks these books are really not just entertaining, but really, really important. Yes. And it's just so it's just a great morale boost. Um, if you're listening and you want to become a Patreon supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash narniweb. Uh, there's a lot of thank you benefits to try to have in there, including in a moment here, Jim Fanner and I are going to discuss if The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a Christmas movie <gasps> dun, dun, slash dun. book slash story. <laughs> and we'll probably talk about Die Hard at some point while we're at it. <laughs> Uh, it's a warning but uh that will be linked in the description and if you're a patreon supporter you can listen and watch that actually we're going to try to include video with that as well all right all right Uh, why don't we take turns on let's do something kind of different here let's take turns on the outro here Uh, why don't you why don't you start all right you've been listening to talking beast the narnia podcast from narniaweb.com if you enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe and give a yeah Be sure to subscribe and give us five stars on iTunes. Post a comment below or in the Talking Beast Facebook group. Uh, Like I already said, visit patreon.com slash narniweb to support this podcast and get exclusive content, including more episodes. You can also email us at... glumpuddle at narniweb.com or... jimfan15 at narniweb.com. Special thanks to AJ Aiken, our assistant editor. Until next time, further up and further in. (laughs) 